Welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew and I wrapped up our series at the Governance of Emerging Technologies Symposium at ASU's Sandra Day O'Connor School of Law, and we were joined by Erica Kochi. Now, Erica is the co-founder of UNICEF Innovation, and in 2013, she was named to the Time 100 World's Most Influential People list. She's also the co-chair of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Human Rights, and that organization, that group, works to promote practical industry-wide solutions to human rights challenges of the fourth industrial revolution. Well, we had an incredibly wide-ranging conversation with Erica, spanning not only Beyonce and Octopi, but also the incredible work that she's doing with the UN. And once again, as part of our series at the Governance of Emerging Technologies Symposium, we were joined by a live audience of students uh, and scholars from around the world. So when you hear some rumblings and rustlings in the background and some people coming and going, that's what was going on. Before we get to the episode, as always, Thank you so very much for joining us at the Future Out Loud podcast. As always, you can tell your friends. You can let them know that you can find Future Out Loud wherever you find your fine podcasts, whether it's Stitcher or SoundCloud or Google Play or the iTunes Store or our website, futureoutloud.org. You can also tweet at us at Future Out Loud or you can find us on Facebook at Future Out Loud. We sure would like to hear what you you're thinking. So thank you as always. And now on with Erica Kochi. Hi, Erica. Hi. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Heather. Well, we're here again at the um, Governance of Emerging Technologies and Science Conference. That is exactly right. And Erica, I have two really pressing questions. One, how do you get on the time 100 most influential people list? Like, that's one. And two, what is this about octopuses? Okay. So for the time 100 most influential, I, I don't know. They just emailed me one day and it ended up in my junk mail. Perfect. And, um, As they do. Right. And That's I was fishing through it <laughs> a couple days later and I mm-hmm. found it. Wow. Yeah. And it, is it like, um, congratulations, you are? Or like, it's congratulations, oh, okay. you are. Okay, it, it wasn't yeah. a wow. please reply to this email within 48 hours. No, right. no. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's They don't ask you. They just, they just right. tell you. And um, it was written like with proper grammar, like all the articles were in the right place. There was no Cyrillic involved. None of that. <laughs> right. It wasn't like from Nigeria. No. That's, oh, <laughs> so, it's almost a disappointing isn't it but no but congratulations that's pretty amazing so what comes along with that um there's a dinner where all of the uh sort of biggest i guess donors to time Mm -hmm. come and get to hang out with the time 100 and uh needless to say my table was way at the back of the room because you know there was also beyonce um so you can't really compete with that but no But no. you're on the same list as Beyonce. I, I know. That's amazing. That, that, that is the most amazing thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then tell, tell us about octopuses. <laughs> there so was big news. I, um, yeah. Yesterday it was announced that octopi, 
octopuses, I'm not sure, are, are indeed uh, actually aliens, which oh, is, that's good uh, to know. they, I think it's something like, they, the spores came from another planet or mm-hmm. another part of the universe and uh, hit the earth millions of years ago. This, this, this is the idea. So the, <laughs> yes, there was this scientific paper. So I, I first saw this as, a, I think it was a Daily Mail piece. Okay. And I thought this is just crazy clickbait, but it's actually based <clears throat> on a, a proper scientific paper where they look at, at the likelihood of, um, it was in the, the Cambrian explosion, mm-hmm. um, it being driven by viruses from space. And they reckon that octopi pusses are actually part of this. Okay, so let's just be clear. Time 100 spam folder, octopus aliens regular email folder. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think I subscribed to like the Quartz Daily and I was in it. That's, wow. That's where you go. Yes. Wow. Good to and know. And now, segue from that to machine learning and human rights. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Which it also feels quite alien right now, doesn't it, human rights? Human rights, I hopefully don't does not feel alien. It's hopefully something that we we all um, embrace, and uh, sort of the world is moving towards the realization of everyone's human rights. Um, but uh, you combine that with uh, machine learning moving into many other parts of our lives, and you could really see how, in a very insidious way, uh, our human rights could be at risk. Absolutely. So I've I'm. Uh, encouraged to hear that uh, the words algorithmic and bias in that order being introduced into more conversations in more in more places, right, these days. And it's something that, you know, Andrew and I have been talking about with one of our colleagues, Jackie Wernemont, for years now. Um, I'm encouraged to hear that other people are sort of taking that up as uh, an idea and as a potential threat. And oh, Ed Finn, of course, I have to mention right, Ed yes. in that conversation. Um, what's your take? Are you seeing that the idea of algorithmic bias as a potential threat to human rights? Is that getting the attention? Is it ascending in the conversations as it should? Well, I think the, the conversation's pretty healthy around um, machine learning and ethics, mm-hmm. and especially in the U.S. In, and EU context. Mm-hmm. I think there's very little discussion of um, what this means specifically for human rights and also what this means for the majority of the world's population, mm-hmm. which lives outside of the U.S. and the, and the EU. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the paper that uh, I put together with my Global Future Council on Human Rights for the World Economic Forum uh, tries to bring human rights to the center of discussion and also uh, tries to be more inclusive of um, the world, the majority of the world's population. Okay. So I'm assuming in part we had the problem that you're having software and algorithms being written by people that just don't understand how they might impact others that they're not aware of, that they don't mix with. Yeah. I mean, I think there's uh, there's two 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 major problems. Uh, the first one is data. Mm-hmm. A lot of um, people around the world, especially women and especially uh, people who live in rural settings, are not producing as much data as uh, right. say say you and I are. Okay. Uh, so uh, if you think about the data that's needed to train um, machines to be able mm-hmm. to be smart, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's missing, uh, and it's not. It's not representative of, of the majority of people out there, and it's really missing the sort of female element because 
most uh, it's usually most men who own the mobile mobile phones right. and even if there is a uh, woman who's using it, it then the the phone will be under the name of the man of the household sure. often and, and this so is specifically captured. in developing economies or is this broader than that yeah I mean so worldwide um, uh, women are about 15% less likely to mm-hmm. own a mobile phone. Okay. You start looking at, um, at South Asia, mm-hmm. that goes up to 38%. Right. Interesting. Okay. And then obviously there's a, a right. rural-urban divide. Um, you know, still or 30% of the world's population does not have a 3G or 4G connection. Mm-hmm. So the data that's being captured about them, right. especially in rural areas, is, is very uh, thin uh, on the ground. And is there a sense that you then get feedback loops with this, that because the, the training sets, the, the data are biased towards certain populations, the algorithms that come out then reinforce that, that bias? Absolutely. Um, I think um, the best way to explore that is through a couple of uh, case studies. So. Mm-hmm. There's a um, smartphone app in Ke- that's in Kenya and Tanzania uh, called Tala that uh, you give access to your social media data and your call data and your location data on your phone, and it will then determine if you are a good candidate for a for a line of credit. Mm-hmm. And this is great for the millions of Kenyans and Tanzanians who don't have a credit history. Um, it gives them access to to credit and helps them build their lives. However, um, imagine you don't have a lot of social media mm-hmm. uh, use that's mm-hmm. happening, especially in rural areas or with women. You can imagine that, um, that the machine learns that you are somehow less credit worthy. Right, sure. right. So it's basically building in, uh, building in bias completely unintentionally, mm-hmm. probably, mm-hmm. but um, it's, and that's why I said insidious, because you don't really see it's happening, and there's no reason to check if anything's go, going wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe you may, may not be, even be able to check, given the black box nature, right, right, uh, yes. box nature of, yes. um, of these things. So yes. uh, it's just, it, I'm not saying that we should stop advancement or the use of machine learning. I just mm-hmm. think that there are things that we need to do and put in place to ensure that um, we are not harming people's rights and we're helping them realize so, that. So how do you do that? How do you spot when things are going wrong and how do you correct what it? What kinds of tools do we need? Because yeah. it seems like, it sounds to me like this is an opportunity for, this is a place where we need a technology that we don't have right now. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a technology play and I'm not a um, computer scientist and so I don't have like very deep opinions on like mm-hmm. what the technology should be mm-hmm. doing. But I think that there are a lot of human things that we can do um, that would really change change the game. So I think first one is diversity of teams. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, who's who's building um, this servicer and uh, are they are they diverse? Mm-hmm. And if they aren't, are they including domain experts mm-hmm. or people who really understand the context for which this machine learning service mm-hmm. uh, or application is going to be deployed? Um, are they including them in the development of it? Okay. Because it's really hard to develop a um, a service for a context which you know nothing about. Right, right. right. And I'm assuming that that companies would actually welcome this because I I know from the company perspective you can't see everything you should be doing, so you usually welcome somebody else telling you what you're missing. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, I would imagine that most companies are are open to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those with a lot of resources definitely are, are open to that because it does right. take some extra resources right. to do it that way. Uh, however, I worry about um, the uh, algorithms or machine learning as a service 
Mm-hmm. So uh, you're a public institution, let's say, or you're the government, and you uh, you want to figure out how yeah. to how to um, make something more efficient, mm-hmm. like the hiring of teachers or the uh, way people can access uh, public health insurance. Right. And you've been promised that there's this newfangled machine learning that can really help you mm-hmm. save a lot of time mm-hmm. and money. Um, and you don't understand the technology or some of the potential implications where bias might start creeping in. Um, and the at the other end, the other person just wants to sell you the service. So you enter mm-hmm. into a contract and it's running mm-hmm. and there's no... Like you don't know when something's going wrong, and you don't so you don't know have to ask the question: Is something going wrong? Right. Who's going wrong for? And sh- where? When should we fix it? You just let it run because it's saving you time and money. Right. So that's the context I worry about the most. Right, okay. right. So how then do you get to that? I mean, shocking as it is, the government actually might not be that good at these things. How do you actually begin <laughs> to work with sort of public institutions? So I think, um, I mean. This is much easier said than, than done, but I think every country and every government needs an AI strategy. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, both in terms of uh, what is this going to mean for my economy mm-hmm. and how do I stay competitive in this, okay. uh, but also uh, how do I make sure that as, we're, as I'm employing AI uh, to make things mm-hmm. more efficient mm-hmm. and faster, um, that I'm also not harming uh, subsections of my population. Sure. So, sorry. Heather. Well, so... I have some thoughts about government and how governments are structured and and run. And um, I'm going to suppose that most governments are not full of people who are A, experts in AI, B, knowledgeable about AI. That's an understatement. Or, yeah, or (laughs) C, people who spend their time thinking about the future governance of technologies. So, with that context in mind, that presumed context in mind, how should governments be going about creating an AI strategy? I think that, um, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is to work with academia. Okay. Because they are sort of a neutral um, arbiter. Are they? <laughs> we well, like to think so. I mean, <laughs> but we have more, our biases. More than I think, I, I think. Profit is not what drives mm-hmm. sure. um, uh, um, most academics. Um, mm-hmm. So, I think that they're and they're an interesting resource. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that there's a need for public-private partnership, mm-hmm. as a lot of the technologies we use become utilities. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, I think that there is a, a lot of opportunity to to work with, with the government um, mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to be able to build a, a strategy with, with, with a particular company. Mm-hmm. I also think that we need to dramatically rethink hiring practices in public institutions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so say more about that. Yeah, so, so I work for, for a UN organization, and um, it's a pre- pretty large organization mm-hmm. um, worldwide. And when you think about the type of people that we had to hire five, ten years ago, we really wanted a deep expert in malaria or child nutrition mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. protection. And we still want that expertise, but we also need people who understand technology skills because the problems facing children today and tomorrow mm-hmm. have a technological element that's mm-hmm. running through them that's 
inevitable. Exactly. And so that's an additional skill. Right. Um, trying to change that sort of in the HR practice, I think, is is, is a challenge for, for any public institution. But to continue to be relevant to the people's lives who you're trying to serve, mm-hmm. I think it's an absolute necessity. Yeah. So, so how about the, the human rights as- aspect of this as well? Because it strikes me that this is also a, another layer. Um, and something that fascinates me is you look at something like the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Um, it amazes me how many people either aren't aware of it mm-hmm. or think that was something from another era mm. that isn't relevant now. And I wonder whether there also needs to be more awareness of how we need to think about well, human rights. Well, can I just add one more layer to that is that in the United States right now, there is a conversation that says that the UN is terrible right? and we the UN should not exist. And if the UN exists, fine for the rest of the world, of the socialist world or whatever, um, that certainly the UN should have nothing to do with America and vice versa. Yeah. So how do so, you feel so, about that? Yeah. So, so I, mean, I work there, so <laughs> no, I, I, right, I believe right. that it should exist. But I think, so let's, let's, let's go back to, you know, uh, 70 years ago when the mm-hmm. Universal Declaration of Human Rights mm-hmm. was uh, pulled together and um, agreed to by almost every country in the world. Uh, I think that following the two world wars there was this time of immense um, like desperation combined with hope mm-hmm. of uh, you know we've lived through a period of really terrible things happening mm-hmm. and atrocities that were permeated by by mankind mm-hmm. um, and this is a point where we need to have a reset button mm-hmm. and there was the political will to come together around this uh, declaration, which essentially was put in place to prevent the kind of atrocities that had been seen uh, in the past. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you would be able to do that again today. Right. No. I just don't think that there's uh, that kind of unity um, in in the world. Um, And if you actually look at the, at the, the individual rights, it's, it's a very simple document and it's really just describing what individuals need in their lives to be productive, happy human beings mm-hmm. uh, at a, from a very basic level. Yes. And I actually don't think that there's, I mean, unless you're a totalitarian government, I don't think there's anything controversial right. in mm-hmm. them at right. all. Like, I mean, right. I think we all want to be able to have the uh, right to, have to, free, to free speech. We all want to be healthy. We mm-hmm. all want to be educated. Mm-hmm. Like, there's nothing right. crazy or controversial right. in right. that. Um, and so... I think that while obviously the UN has many problems and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was developed before technology mm-hmm. really existed in mm-hmm. uh, the way we know it now in the form of the internet, I think that there's no other alternative mm-hmm. currently. Right, and right. Um, to, without that sort of universally held grounding of the rights that you should have just be mere, for merely being human, mm-hmm. what are you left with? You're left with values, which are very different across different cultures. Yes. You're left with ethics, which are also different. can be very, very different across yep. many cultures. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is the only thing that's universal. Mm-hmm. So it, it actually strikes me listening to this, there are a lot of conversations, especially with artificial intelligence, about embedding values, human values within mm. AI Who's systems. Values? Well, right. so, so yes. that is exactly, uh-huh. and, and that's where those conversations fall yeah. apart. 
But if you begin to start from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it actually gives you a foundation to start thinking about how you understand and evaluate what could go wrong and how you want to nudge things yeah. in the right direction. It's not it's not going to solve everything, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think, you know, there's uh, with the internet, there's this huge tension of, um, you know, freedom of speech and hate speech, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Or, um, and, you know, so it doesn't solve absolutely everything. But I do think that it's a starting point from which everyone agrees or every mm-hmm. country has signed on yes. Yes. Um, to, to have a, converse, a useful and productive conversation. Yes, yes. I, I have a sort of pragmatic, a process question about that. So, you know, when you're in a business and you go through strategic planning every three to five years or whatever it is, um, and you have your mission and vision and value statement that everybody has come to at the last strategic planning event and you sort of re, re-up that, right? And you review it and you say, is this still the direction? Does that happen in a formalized way with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? It does not, because I don't think you could ever get anyone to uh, agree right, upon right. it again. <laughs> really? Yeah. So it, that seems very interesting to me, that we say, like, yes, this is the one universal statement, but if we, but does it hold the test of time? Now, I believe in it mm. as an individual, and that's what I do my, that's why I work, is to yeah. forward those principles in society. Um but I think that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one thing that that does happen, um, which has, is there's sort of, in the same way you think about like amendments to constitutions mm-hmm. or uh, mm-hmm. things like that, there are other uh, sort of conventions that mm-hmm. exist that are sort of supplemental to mm-hmm. uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Mm-hmm. So um, one that sort of UNICEF had a large role in pulling together was the Convention on the Rights of the Child, mm-hmm. uh, which has yes. been signed, which is based off of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights mm-hmm. and was came into being, um, you know, much more recently, within yes. the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. And this was, uh, we did this because we felt that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights didn't account enough for the rights uh, of children that and the special mm-hmm. protections needed for right. children. Yes. Right. Um, and so the same thing has happened uh, with uh, people with disabilities as well. Yes. Um, so I think that there is a way to um, to add on to the Universal Declaration mm-hmm. of Human Rights, mm-hmm. and I think you know I can see a future where you try to 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 do that with technology. Um, I just don't know how successful it would be because I mean it's much easier to get people around the the table when you're talking about um, the well-being of children. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, Yes, yes. Technology is a little more... A little little bit more difficult. But it does strike me that even because you've got this foundation and even with uh, the extensions and augmentations to Mm -hmm. it, even just making sure that tech innovators are aware of that um, so that they're not just blindly going ahead with Mm -hmm. no understanding Mm -hmm. of what human rights actually means. I think, I always think of, you know, technology is not the thing, it's a tool Mm -hmm. for humans. And so it strikes me that I don't think there we necessarily need to have a special declaration about technology or mm-hmm. aimed to technology, but we must, of course, incorporate technology as the tool. Right. 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 Um, so what do you think about that? Do you think we need it? No, I don't think we need a special declaration on technology. Um, 
because it changes so quickly. Right, 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 right. But I do think that we need to use the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as the guidepost Mm -hmm. uh, versus, um, you know, the U.S. using sort of the Western um, sort of values and ethics and the Chinese using their set of values and ethics. I do think that there there is that need for universality given that technology cannot be... Contained to national borders. So, so through your um, WEF Council, you mm-hmm. World Economic this, Forum. Thank you, World You're Economic welcome. Forum Council. Um, <laughs> you you produce this document. Um, how optimistic are you that that's going to at least stimulate a conversation around this that's going to go somewhere useful? So, I think that given the council's term is only is only two years. Um, I don't necessarily see members of our council being the ones to carry it out um, Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. perpetuity. Um, However, there are uh, a lot of groups out there, like the Partnership on AI Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, the IEEE or a Mm -hmm. bunch of groups Mm -hmm. uh, who are really looking at this. And, um, you know, I... I talk to them and engage with them and say, here, use this. So hopefully that's a seed which then grows into (laughs) a beautiful tree. And also I have, um, I, you know... uh, members of my council and myself, you know, take this to um, the big tech companies and mm-hmm. say, please, like, these these recommendations were developed specifically for business. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is our main audience of this, uh, of this paper. And we want to see the realization of all the wonderful things that come with machine learning, mm-hmm. uh, but we also don't want this to harm people. Okay. Yep. I, I, I would think neither do you. Right. right. So where can people find that paper? Um, it is on the World Economic Forum's uh, website. So, wefforum.org. Wefforum.org. But we'll put a link. And then also, if you Google machine learning and human rights, uh, it will come up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also put up a, a Medium post, which has a lot of uh, really interesting graphics in it that we our awesome design team at UNICEF um, pulled together. Uh, which are sort of go beyond the, the World Economic Forum branding guidelines. Great. So, yeah. <laughs> so medium.com, and is it your Yeah, it's, on, it's under my... Uh, Erica yeah, Gucci. Yeah. Okay, very good. Well, Erica, thank you so much for being oh, with thanks us. For, thanks for having me. Thank, yeah. you. thank you. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation and Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at ASU. Mark Van Hare created our music. Esmeralda Parker is our production assistant. Our website is futureoutloud.org. Subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your fine podcasts.